How does a neuropsychologist work with brain injury survivors and their families? What are the biggest concerns addressed in treatment? And what tips does a neuropsychologist have for survivors, family, and treaters? Learn about this from neuropsychologist Dr. David Lechuga. Dramatic Brain Injury Recovery. Hi, I'm Dr. Dan Gardner, and I talk about traumatic brain injury recovery. And today I'm pleased to be talking with neuropsychologist Dr. David Lechuga. Welcome, Dave. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Dan. Good to have you. So, Dave, tell me a little about your background and how you got into the area of traumatic brain injury recovery. I'm trained as a clinical psychologist initially. I was trained at UCLA, and um, during the course of my doctor training, I was just fascinated by the brain and anything related to the brain. So, fortunately, they fed our curiosity at UCLA, and I ended up working and doing research with patients that have sustained concussions, of all things, due to boxing. Oh. And um, when I got out of training, uh, my first job was on a rehabilitation unit at Sentinella Hospital in Inglewood. And I worked with physical and neuro rehabilitation patients, saw a lot of brain injury patients, and kind of took off from there. And I've stayed involved with sports concussions, and I work with amateur professional athletes who've had concussions. And I've always been intrigued by and humbled by this entire field. So. Been doing it for about 30 years, and I just feel like I'm just now getting an understanding just of beginning. the area. Well, but Dave, you, it sounds like you've spent a lot of time in the trenches, and you had some very good training as well. Tell me a little about what neuropsychology is, and how does a neuropsychologist interact with a brain injured survivor? Sure. So, a neuropsychologist is a subspecialist in the area of psychology, and my colleagues work in clinical settings, they work in research settings, and sometimes they do a combination of both. And primarily we're interested in what happens behaviorally, cognitively, when the brain is affected or even non-affected. So neuropsychologists will study via observation, via tests, uh, via, via other approaches, the brain. And mm -hmm. we have subspecialty guidelines that um, support the training of a neuropsychologist. Most are trained at the fellowship level. Mm -hmm. And we just work in different settings. For example, I work in more in a clinical setting as opposed to my colleagues who just do research, not just. That's a difficult endeavor as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be mainly in a clinical setting for my particular work. Um, I see. And just briefly with that, um, that means I will evaluate and treat patients who have sustained some sort of brain-based injury or an illness of one type or another. and. Some of my colleagues do assessment primarily. They try to quantify thinking skills and behavior. Uh, some of us do a combination of the two. I see. So you're not just doing evaluation and assessment, you're doing treatment as well. Well, that was my generation. When I was trained, um, mm -hmm. there's a, there was a very strong psychotherapy bias. And uh -huh. uh, the feeling was that unless you were trained to do good psychotherapy, you would be less helpful when it comes to actually interacting with and assessing patients that have sustained some sort of brain-based abnormality. Well, least, it's, it's nice to do the assessment and then stick around to implement your recommendations. Yes, and the assessment is always incomplete, right? I mean, it gives you a set of data which is to be respected, but you really have to spend time with the human being over time to understand how these data translate into their ability to function on a day-to-day -day basis. So. Um, how does the information you glean from the assessment help in the patient's recovery? 
Well, certainly um, in rehabilitation settings, like for example, today I spent most of the day at um, an outpatient day treatment program, and my assessments are used initially to help understand where a person's thinking skills are and where they are psychologically and behaviorally. So that will help set uh, a set of treatment goals that are defined by the entire team. Mm -hmm. And the assessment will quantify just progress along certain goals. So I'll assess an individual often at key increments, for example, monthly within a rehabilitation program to track their progress and then to fine tune the approaches, for example, with respect to cognitive rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. Like I say, we're, we're still having some difficulty with memory skills, especially for new information. So the testing can be used to guide that approach in addition to other observations just from my clinical work with the patient. I see. Now in your clinical work, do you do psychotherapy as well as memory type of therapy, uh, cognitive remediation as it's called? Right. I, I, I do primarily the psychotherapy. We have, okay. as you know, we have speech and language pathologists and, and other sometimes occupational therapists who do cognitive rehabilitation approaches mm -hmm. of various types. But I enjoy just helping somebody manage or deal with the fact that they're, they're not who they were mm -hmm. and there's a, a new normal that's evolving. And I find working with them and their families to be extremely helpful as far as having that person adjust to something that is not something they can ignore. They can, and depending on their type of injury, they may have more or less insight into their difficulties, but I enjoy doing the psychotherapy with patients that are more acutely injured. Good. So you follow these people over long periods of time, I assume. Yes, uh, maybe I could be more efficient, but I followed some patients for five to 10 years um, mm -hmm. post-injury. Well, as do I, you probably agree that that in many of these cases, the brain injury is a lifelong condition. It's a lifelong condition that seems to kind of create issues for an individual at different key developmental junctures. And mm -hmm. obviously for some of my younger patients who get injured in high school, helping them when they think about going out on their own, when they have a relationship, when they have a child, when they get a new job, all these things represent opportunities to recalibrate and readjust. And so. I think it's important to be there for them, if you can, while they go through these different developmental milestones. You bet. Can you give me some case examples of some of the patients with whom you work? Sure, sure. So I'll give you an example of a patient I, I was working with today. He's actually from Hawaii, mm -hmm. and he had a heart attack while he was working and sustained an anoxic brain injury, mm -hmm. and was treated over in Hawaii, over on Oahu initially, but kind of came to the mainland because we have a day treatment program that suit his needs. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my work has been just evaluating where he was cognitively and he has memory issues, but he has some preserved abilities. So we were able to transition him back to his home in Hawaii. And I'm currently working with him over the FaceTime right now mm -hmm. and the rehabilitation team there to see if we can get him back to volunteer roles and then maybe to part-time modified employment. So a lot of the work has been facilitating that insight and reinforcing the use of strategies to lower the handicap associated with his memory problems, and then to see what might be realistic as far as him returning back to meaningful productivity. Um, mm -hmm. So far, things are working out okay. 
Good. Well, I'm impressed by a couple of things. One is that you're doing this remotely. And the other thing is that you're doing follow-up and continuing treatment after he leaves the structured program, which to me is so important not to let the patient dangle and be alone without the support and resources after the formal program is finished. Right, right. That's that's a very difficult place, as you know, with many of our patients. They, they leave a structured setting, and the setting is therapeutic. It really gives them some boundaries, some guidance, a lot of prompting and cueing, and then all of a sudden they're discharged and they're home, and everybody is working or at school, and they're at home, and thinking about where they are in their life. And that can be a very difficult place. So. I think that's where the care really needs to continue. What are some of the challenges that you talked about? His, he, he transitions to home and he's sitting alone. Other people are more active and working. He's not doing the activities, maybe the occupational role that he did before. What are some of the concerns, the anxieties, the fears, the worries that a brain injury survivor would have at that time? Of course, that varies from patient to patient, but I think most of the patients I see feel like they're a burden. And they fear that they will be so much of a burden to their family that they shouldn't be around. Those who get depressed, they really feel like Mm -hmm. it's just not a net benefit to be around their family. In fact, it's a net loss. Mm -hmm. Um, This would be more of a younger individual who maybe was a breadwinner or parenting and now feels like they have to be parented. So they feel humiliated and they have a lot of feelings that they may or may not understand you have to help them deal with that loss and that dependency that's caused by the disability, the guilt, the shame of that dependency. Correct. And, and so the challenge at that juncture, of course, is to deal with a sense of loss and then also work with the family system to see how this individual can feel productive and like a contributing member of the family again. And that's always meaningful work particularly if the family's interested in coming into the sessions or allowing me, in some cases, certainly to come into their home and talk yeah. to them about these issues. That sounds very powerful. Uh, Dave, can you give me other examples? Well, I can give you uh, some other examples. I think of more long-term cases, like an adolescent patient who was in a car accident. He was 12 years old at the time that he was a passenger in a car and, and got into a bad uh, accident. He sustained a rather severe injury to the frontal lobes and the frontal system. So. It was very difficult. I've been working with him for about seven years because there needed to be some assistance in the school setting to help them understand how to work with him, not just cognitively, but to deal with his tendency to be somewhat disinhibited in the school mm-hmm. setting. Mm-hmm. Adolescent male, you know, a lot of things tend to be said as opposed to thought through. So I've been seeing him over time and really working within a system then and the challenge then has not just been clinical it's been it's been financial like how do we fund that type of care and uh, so that that's been difficult but we've been able to get some funding to assist him so here's an adolescent where the hormones are flowing and naturally an adolescent is more impulsive and less thoughtful and on top of that he has a brain injury which causes disinhibition so you had a greater he had a greater challenge bigger challenge yeah Any particular strategies that you used with this survivor? Well, it had to be an intervention by a group. So we worked behaviorally with the people in the school district about targeting certain approaches and everybody cueing and prompting, essentially becoming his frontal lobes, as some people talk about, to the extent possible. And we need a lot of patience because it, to me, it's, it's going to take him about 10 years really to start to 
appreciate that some of the approaches are actually in his best interest, not mm -hmm. in our best interest, which is what he perceived initially. Sure, so, he felt restricted. Right, restricted, mm -hmm. uh, judged, um, we're the problem, not him. So some of the issues earlier on, but I think over time he realizes that some of the strategies have been in his best interest, but there, there's been a lot of up and downs in his life and in the lives of his family members. So. Yeah, we're not out of the woods yet, but we're we're getting there. Right, one has to have patience, like you said, and also I think you pointed out something important. You're not doing psychoanalytic psychotherapy with him because of the cognitive deficits. He needs a right. different type of approach, more educational and involving the people with whom he interacts, training them on what to ignore and what to reinforce, and so forth. That's correct. I think with somebody who has more of a mild injury, someone would say a concussion with no prolonged loss of consciousness or periods of amnesia, then you have enough preserved brain tissue to do some of the approaches that have some evidence as being helpful, like uh, a more cognitive or cognitive behavioral approach. Right. Uh, but individuals that are more severely compromised, there has to be uh, a different approach that is individualized and more behavioral, certainly supportive, and probably more systems in terms of how the interventions are done with a family, with a larger group. And this adolescent, he's involved in his church, so the pastors of his church have been so helpful. So what you're saying is these people are acting as his frontal lobe that's been damaged? Yes. Any other case examples that come to mind? On the more mild end, I've had patients, uh, let's say yesterday I had a patient who came in who, this is part of a lawsuit, and um, this individual was in an accident and had a concussion, no loss of consciousness, but definitely altered after the accident. And I saw this person a little earlier than I typically would because I've been counseling some of the attorneys to allow me to do a briefer exam within the first 60 to 90 days post-incident so that I can get a sense of what's necessary from that point forward, if anything. So this is actually an individual that I assessed on two occasions. This, the last occasion was yesterday. And at this point in time, she's about six to seven months post-injury and she was completely without symptoms. Um, oh. Cognitively, physically, she still had some soft tissue issues, but she was feeling more like herself. And uh, it was nice to be able to see her. I essentially wrote a report that said, I believe her concussion is resolved from my perspective. She has some soft tissue issues that can affect her ability to sleep and compromise her efficiency mentally the next day. But other than that, psychologically, she's doing quite well. Isn't it true that in most mild traumatic brain injuries, uh, the recovery over a, a number of weeks or months? I, you know, I, it depends on the setting and the individual. But uh, for example, the athletes that I see who have concussions, they tend to recover within a few days to about a week or two. Why uh, so fast? Why so much well, I, faster than others? I know they're healthy. Their concussions are mild. You know, even if they have a loss of consciousness, that's that's longer than just a few seconds. Then we have a, a long recovery. Or if they have had a history of concussions, we have a more protracted recovery. But sure. in most healthy individuals, the research has been pretty clear, at least with athletes, that within seven to ten days, often a, a few days to a few weeks, most healthy younger individuals are completely asymptomatic. To get back in the game. But isn't there a small percentage of even mild traumatic brain injury that go on to a persistent post-concussion syndrome? Yes, yes, that's, that's certainly the, the term we use in our field. And I think these situations are more complex, obviously. 
They're called a syndrome because you're going to have some cognitive issues, obviously. We often have soft tissue injuries or orthopedic injuries with chronic pain, so the discomfort can disrupt sleep and affect their just general sense of health. And then psychologically, they're intact enough to know that they aren't who they were. So they right. have reactions to that. And then they may have some histories too, like, like so many of us do. There may be a history of pre-accident issues that are now being stirred up by the accident. Right. And so you have a more complex mix of issues, all of which are legitimate for the majority of the individuals and all of which require time and a more gentle approach over time to help somebody restabilize. Right. And I think, Dave, you're also making the point that you're not just looking at one data point. You're not just looking at the neuropsych testing or the imaging and so on. You're taking all these factors into account, the biological, the psychological, the social support, and putting them all together to come up with the best understanding and the best intervention. I would agree. And that, that's a challenge. Often the more, as you probably have seen, often the cases that are more challenging are the more milder cases wherein multiple systems are affected and therefore by definition you have to intervene in a manner that affects all these domains and so you have maybe an individual who's undergoing physical therapy or chiropractic care and maybe they have some visual issues that require certain types of visual interventions or vestibular problems and all these things are putatively mild but when you add them all up they're quite disruptive to an individual Especially that individuals, uh, you know, was functioning in a demanding role. Like I've had pilots, you know, yeah. a, a pilot who just falls off his bike and hits his head. And there's no imaging data to suggest that he has any type of bleed or any shearing type injury in the brain. Certainly no fracture, but he's not the same. If he's in a cognitively demanding environment, like being a pilot, even functioning a little less is not going to hack it. That's right. And he knows it. And therein lies some of the psychological issues that one has to deal with as well. Right. So help him mourn the loss and try to find meaning if he can't get back into the cockpit and fly his plane. Right. And yeah. that's a major sense of loss for these individuals. Right. So you can help them with a grieving process. What do you find are the biggest challenges in treating brain injury survivors and families? And what are the biggest satisfactions for you? Well, the biggest challenges are always going to be, do we have the resources, whether it be financial or expertise in the community to work with this particular individual? Can we marshal the necessary resources? And of course, that interacts with, is that individual motivated to participate in this rehabilitation or this treatment plan? Mm -hmm. So that's always kind of a challenge. There may be financial limitations. There may be logistical limitations. There may be any number of factors getting in the way. But that's a challenge that is something we have to just approach in a patient way and try to be as non-judgmental as possible and, 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 and to adopt a problem-solving orientation, if you will, with them. Yeah. The, you know, I'm smiling, Dave, because what you're describing is a, is a long-term thoughtful process which takes patience if you're going to do this kind of work. Well, by definition, this is human beings are complex. <laughs> and right. right. It, you know, not to demean my podiatry colleagues or anything, but we're not dealing with toenails here or, or, you know, any type of problems that may be more circumscribed. This is pervasive. It affects yeah. a, a sense of self. One of my patients said that this feels like it's damaged my soul. It's yeah. existential. It's not just something that's uh, more incremental and circumscribed. 
But I tell you, the it's, joys it's, are. It's, it, I was going to say it's not a skin rash. It's 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 affected them to the core of their being. Right, right, right. Who they are, their sense of self. Um, yeah. If that sense of self has been formed. Um, but the other thing that I, I think the joys really come with the privilege, the privilege of being with somebody while they're going through this type of difficult transition. I just feel very blessed in that regard and mm -hmm. to be trusted enough to hear what people are thinking and what they're worried about and then to be trusted enough to work through things with them incrementally. That's quite a privilege and quite an honor. It's a very special relationship to have such an intimate, meaningful connection with another human being and to feel that you've made some contribution to guiding them in the right direction. Yes, I, I really don't know, maybe I'm biased in this way, I, I don't know if there's a, a more privileged role in society mm -hmm. than a healer. It is a blessing, I agree. What advice do you have for brain injury survivors for their family members, and what advice do you have for healthcare treaters? Yes. Okay, so for the family, I would say there are resources out there, and there's a lot to take in, and clearly most families, and certainly the patients, become overwhelmed initially. But if they could slowly allow themselves to know about certain resources, mm -hmm. um, such as a brain injury association, a support group, clinicians who enjoy doing this work and are within their network and then start to kind of create their team of professionals to help their loved one or to help themselves get through this transition. You have to really have a team of trusted professionals and it takes a while to accumulate that expertise. And then for the clinicians or people doing this work, the other advice I would have is stay humble, um, but dedicate yourself to the study of your patients and be okay with that. And to me, I really like the fact that I was trained as a scholar to be a professor. Yeah. And the first day at UCLA in our graduate program, we were taught by a, my professor who was a retired professor at that time, but he enjoyed teaching so much, he continued to teach this one class. Mm -hmm. And he said, listen, um, you're all smart. I don't think I'm as smart as my colleagues, but uh, you're all smart, there's no issue there. Um, we're going to teach you the skills to really address your curiosity. So we want you to be curious and over the next five to seven years, let's make sure you have what you need to have in order to study those questions that will come up as you look at the research and do your clinical work. And mm -hmm. So I like the idea of staying curious and that rejuvenates me as I do this work every day. Yeah, the curiosity, also the interest in others and the interest in engaging in a very intimate, special way. Right, I think right. th those are some of the ingredients it takes to do a good job. Right, right. I have friends who are in the priesthood, the ministry, and they talk mm -hmm. about a vocation. And it's yeah. always in, you know, in that context. And I, I, I like that, but I always feel like this is a vocation as well. And they use terms like being called, and many are yeah. called or chosen. Uh, I think that's just, just about in every field. If you're really lined up, if everything is lined up for you in your life, you really feel called to a vocation. And that's a fortunate and privileged position. And I feel like that helps sustain people too who do this work. It's so nice when we like what we do. Do you have anything else to add? Any other advice? Well, I, I really love where the field is going. And I encourage students, like high school students, middle school students, to maintain their interest in neuroscience and related fields. And then to not be too intimidated by this. and just be patient as they study 
because there's a lot of kids who are coming up now who are bilingual, who are trilingual. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I'm just stunned by how smart some of these students are. Yeah. I think the society of just five to ten years from now is probably going to be a multilingual, multicultural society where we're going to be able to help people if you have those skills from all levels of society. And I, I'm really looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. I think that'll be exciting for people who do this work in the future. Very exciting and very hopeful. Well, Dave, I want to thank you very much for spending the time and effort to talk to me today, and I wish you the best. Dan, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Traumatic Brain Injury Recovery Please like, subscribe, and comment.